Matt Gouget, aka Matt the Mortgage Guy, got his start in lending back in 2013. As a self-proclaimed math nerd and people person, he burned his proverbial ships, leaving a steady paycheck with the state of California for the commission-based world of brokering residential mortgages. He's excelled in the field because he himself is a real estate investor and he can advise clients at a high level. As a real estate investor himself, he's able to help clients not only analyze the mortgage of their primary residence, but on a potential investment property as well. In this episode, we talk to Matt about his journey from state employee to commission-based mortgage broker, the power of taking the leap into the unknown from an unfulfilling job, the tale of buying his first property before the Great Recession that is still a rental, and his misadventures investing long distance in Alabama. I'm Neil Henderson, and this is The Road to Family Freedom. Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sun Belt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things, and you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash storage. That's roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash S-T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Well, Matt Gouget, welcome to the road to family freedom. Thanks for having me, Neil. Absolutely. So before we dig into the world of residential mortgages and investment properties and all that, I have to, I'd like you to share the story of how you left your cushy state job in this, with the state of California, you know, with a a job and a pension and benefits and a regular salary to go to work for commission only as a mortgage broker. Right. Yeah. And the timing of it, you know, from the outside looking in couldn't have been worse. (laughs) We had literally just had our second child in 2013. Uh, shout out to Ethan. He just celebrated his eighth birthday yesterday. It was, you know, seven and a half, eight years ago. And we just had our second child. I was doing finance for the state and I just didn't enjoy it. And I think that, you know, I'm a self-aware type of guy conversations with my wife about, I don't know if this is for me. Cause what had happened is I had run a small business for about eight years after I graduated from college. So I had a finance degree, international business degree, and ran a small business, had a lot of fun, but realized I wasn't going to be in the casino business forever. I was running a small card room, went and got a finance job for the state, which, you know, you have benefits and you've got stability and you've got all that, but it just wasn't firing me up. Right. And, uh, I just had this slow realization. I was barely there a year. And, and the funny part is, I don't know if I've told this part of the story before, but For the state of California, once you get past a year and you've kind of passed probation, you could leave and come back and you're kind of, you've got a little bit of of, of fallback, right? I was like two weeks short of that one year and my, and my wife had finally just, she'd heard it enough for me where she's like, if you don't enjoy it, just leave, just, just, well, you'll figure it out. Right. And, and this kind of coincided with an old buddy of mine who had been in mortgage, was getting back into mortgage and said, listen, Matt, you're good with numbers. You love people. You're not afraid to get out there and work hard. You do good in mortgage. And, and that was basically the precipice of like, okay, I don't enjoy this job. God bless the 270,000 or so that work for the state of California. I've got tons of clients, tons of family members. It just wasn't for me. And working a hundred percent commission where the harder you work, the better you get, the more you can gamify it and, and do well, the more you make, I would never go back in, in all honesty. I, I think that there's something to that the people who execute the best and work the hardest should get paid the most. So here we are seven and a half years later, I've got a mortgage business that has just exploded. But yeah, back in 2013, when uh, my, my wife's at home taking care of the kiddos and I've got to not only pay for my own health insurance, but make, make enough money to feed the family, it was a scary jump, but so worth it. And I'm having a ton of fun and, and have been over the last seven and a half years uh, doing the mortgage gig. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's funny. I have a a friend of mine in Reno who is basically going through 
what you went through. He he was working, he'd been working for the state of Nevada for years, cushy state job, probably a little more travel than he wanted to do. He had two girls, you know, two twin girls recently, and then just decided, you know what, I, I want to become a mortgage broker. And he did it. He's doing it. I don't know how nice. success, I have to touch base with him and I'll, I'll have to share this episode with him because I think he'd probably enjoy it. But um, so many people that we talk to, you know, we often talk about this show of, uh, you know, not allowing your W-2 job to be a single point of failure. And that's why we, we always encourage people to go out and find additional streams of income, build those extra streams of income. But the other great point that you bring up is that job satisfaction is so huge. I mean, people work sucks, you know, I mean, it really lets, you know, let's be honest. There's a few people out there probably who absolutely love what they do and they love getting up in the morning and they love going to work. But a lot of the time your satisfaction is going to be based on the amount of growth that uh, you can do. If it's not a job you love, and the people you work with and whether or not it engages you. So I, I, my applause to you for recognizing, having that self-awareness to go, I can't do this for another 20 years, you know, and taking the risk and burning the boats and, and getting out there. Yeah, true, truly burn the boats. And it's funny because a lot of people are afraid to make these shifts. And, and, um, I met Gary Vaynerchuk last year and he kind of, kind of beats on this thing that, well, you know, if you're 30, 35, 40, 50, you can reinvent yourself. And I think in today's landscape, that's a lot more common. It used to be work a job for 40 years, receive a pension, go on your merry way. And the thought of changing one, two, three times was crazy. Now you meet people that, you know, they're on the eighth different venture, the eighth different job that they've had and and they're 35 years old. And so I think it's more common nowadays and it should be. You should be trying a bunch of different stuff, finding where you fit in and, and your genius kind of shines and you could enjoy yourself make money and, and, and have it all. And, and really in mortgage, I've found that and I've, I've, I've found it over the years. It, it kind of changes at first. It was the numbers part of it that I enjoyed. And then, and the people part of it. And now it's like the business building and the management part of it as I grow a team. And so it's ever evolving, but still having a ton of fun. Yeah. Well, some advice I heard recently from one of our previous guests, a guy named Scott Crone, uh, and he said, you know, when you're going into any deal and, and any big life changes, think about what the worst case scenario is going to be, what the most likely scenario is going to be, and the best case scenario. And if you can live with the worst case scenario, then move move forward. Then, you know, it's you can live with the worst case scenario. And, and it's just so many people get paralyzed by fear of of the unknown and jump and making that leap and and burning the boats like you did. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's, there's a lot of people that, you know, I'm of the belief now that if, if there's something that, that calls me and, and excites me, I'm going to go give it a shot. Worst case scenario, I could freaking drive Uber. I could do whatever I need to do to, to pay the bills. And after investing in real estate, I've got enough of a passive income where, you know, I could go back to top ramen. I'm not that far removed from living a pretty simple lifestyle, which I actually still do. We could get into that later. Okay. So let's talk about, I, I want to get into the mortgage stuff, but I want to sort of first talk about your journey as a real estate investor. Sure. What was the, can you tell us a little bit about that first investment property that you bought? Yeah. And I think this one is going to be super helpful for a lot of people that are first getting started in real estate investing. Cause as a mortgage broker, I talk to thousands of folks, investors and people that are just buying their primary. And the, the cool part for me is being able to inject some of the experience that I've had and maybe the educational piece that I like to share with people as they're buying their first primary. Because if they're ever going to think about investing in real estate, the way that I kind of backed into it is how if I were to put a number on it, I would guess 90% of people do it this way. You buy a primary, down the road, things change and you upsize, downsize, move cities. That first primary turns into your first rental property. That's how it was for me and that's how it is for so many people to where now when I talk to somebody who's 27 or 32 or whenever they're buying that first property, think about where you might be in five years. If this isn't the house that you're going to be in, at least some of your mindset going in should be, what's this going to look like as a rental if I move out? And how can I plan and position myself to where I buy this and upon exit, I'm not selling it 
and and I don't need the 45,000 in net proceeds or the 90, whatever it is, right? Position yourself so that could be a future rental. And there's a huge benefit to that because as a mortgage advisor, I can tell people the very best terms you're ever going to get with real estate is when it's your primary residence. And so if this thing is your primary residence, you put 5% down, get a 3% 30-year fixed interest rate, and then three years from now, five years from now, you move out. That loan doesn't change. You keep those same great terms. Then you buy a new primary, you get those great terms again, but it's on the next primary. And so in 2006, no longer possible to buy 100% financing, but you know, I, I financed 100% didn't put anything down. And I bought that first house. And a side note and another story to tell about that is that you know, timing the market is kind of silly. Anybody who talks to you about stock market investing is going to say, you know, time in the market is more important than timing the market. Because if you look at that, and I've made a video on this on my YouTube channel, if you look at my 2006 purchase, I bought it for $345 and was just engaged. Me and my wife get married in 2008. We have our first kid in 2009. Everybody knows what happened in 2009. It's funny, my firstborn son on March 9th, that was like the financial disaster day, like the stock market doomsday, but also real estate was was falling off of a cliff. And so I bought it for 345 in 06. And all my neighbors who started to default and foreclose and all that, 10, 11, 12, everything around me sold for 180. And I was fortunate enough to be able to get into a loan modification and had my second pretty much forgiven, modified the first. And here I am 15 years later, what some people would say is, gosh, you paid 345, bad investment. That house is probably worth... 450, 460. So it hasn't appreciated a ton, you know, because it saw a big dip and then came back up, but it's worth double what I owe on it. I don't pay the mortgage on it. My tenants do. It'll be paid off in 15 years. And, you know, so that's the the long-term view of real estate that anybody who's been around real estate and invest in real estate kind of understands. Over time, you win with real estate. And I think that for those who don't have grandiose aspirations of a hundred doors, they say, oh, if I added two or three doors, you know, a, a single family house, a duplex, whatever it is, right? Just a couple investments before I retire, these things can spit off some passive income. I, I deal with, with all the state workers that, you know, they're enjoying their job, but they want to do something else. And they realize that, you know, social security plus my pension, it'll provide for a decent lifestyle. But what if, what if you added a couple properties that you could get paid off by the time you're in your mid sixties and those paid off properties kicked off $2,000 a month, which isn't, you know, rents in California are out of control. Um, rents most anywhere are and rents continue to go up. You pay your mortgage off. And if you've got an extra $5,000 a month in retirement income, how does that change your life? You know, it goes from, you know, your, your leisure and your fun activity is a weekly round of golf to, you know, you get to go on a $5,000 vacation every month. That's a drastically different lifestyle. Well, Long-winded answer. No, it's fine. That's great. <laughs> you know, I have kind of a similar story, not quite as a happy ending as yours with my first my first home purchase here in Las Vegas. And I assume yours was in Sacramento? You're correct. Yeah, Sacramento. two markets that just absolutely got their teeth kicked in by the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. So you were able, just so I'm clarify, you were able to get into that for zero down. It was 100% hundred percent finance. Correct. Yeah. Okay. It was one of those 80, 20 loans, which obviously has been refinanced, but it was, uh, yeah. you know, for everybody who's crying about rates going from two, seven, five to 3%, my first was 6.75 and my second was 12%. Yeah. So I was borrowing that money a little bit more expensive than you can get yeah. nowadays. I wouldn't recommend that path or my path, but it brings up a great point. And you mentioned it earlier. And when people are looking at a primary residence to keep their eye on the future about what is this, you know, and I talk about the three immutable laws of real estate investing a lot, which is buy a property for cash flow. And if you're buying a property that, you know, as a primary residence, keep an eye on, okay, if I were to turn this into a rental someday, will it cash flow? Two, buy with long-term low leverage debt. So don't do like I did and don't do like you did and, and do a hundred percent leverage. You know, you were, you were fortunate <laughs> that you were able to get the loan modification, which was, you know, allowed you to stay in the property and then 
have enough reserves, six months reserves. And now, you know, most banks are not going to, most lenders are not going to give you a loan without having six months reserves in the bank. But if you do that, time will take care of the rest. You know, you, you have a property that was once worth, you know, it was at one point worth $180,000. And now you said it's worth what, 460? Yeah. Somewhere in that range. Now, again, you know, that ROI is probably not great uh, if you, if you annualized it, but it's also cash flowing. It's continuing to appreciate. The loan is continuing to go down. That rate is locked in for 30 years. That's why I love real estate. Right. Right. Yeah. For, for a number of reasons, like you said, over time as real estate appreciates and the loan gets paid down, you build wealth. And and for a property like that, that's in a good neighborhood and has tenants that are amazing, just Venmo you the, the full rent on the first of every single month. It's $25,000 a year in added net worth at very, very little work. It's, it's about as passive as it gets. Now, do you, do you have, have you expanded your portfolio? Do you have more rental properties than just that one? Yeah. And so since then I've added a couple fourplexes and actually before the fourplexes, I had an out-of-state investing adventure, we'll call it. And, and, uh, on my YouTube channel, plug to Matt, the mortgage guy, YouTube channel, I've got watch this before you invest out of state. And I say that, and I'm, I'm the type that I like to look at things from all angles. And I understand that like my one sample isn't reflective of all of it, right? There's some people that have actually crushed it investing out of state. There's some people who've had decent experiences, bad, the whole spectrum, right? For me, I learned a couple lessons that I thought to myself, if there was a playbook for how to do it wrong, it was probably how I did it. And I think that that one was, was 2017 and I bought a place in Alabama. And so for anybody who's listening, who wants to know how to do it the wrong way, I had a, I had a growing mortgage business and a hundred percent of my focus was on a growing mortgage business. And so I thought to myself, I'll take a look. And when I say, take a look, Neil, I took about a 15 minute look and I ran some numbers and I said, well, gosh, 25% down on this little itty bitty $65,000 property is next to nothing. What is there to lose? And, you know, with very little due diligence, with very little analysis, I just took a pro forma from a company who does turnkey rentals. And, and another thing that I think from my experience would be a word of advice is the turnkey companies that are in the markets are generally going to be better than California turnkey company that says, Hey, we invest in these 17 markets that it's, it's likely they don't know much as much about that market as somebody who specifically invests in Memphis and their turnkey company is located in Memphis. So just took a pro forma, ran some numbers said, Oh yeah, this thing is going to be a 20% cash on cash return. And you know, sight unseen that people like you didn't fly out to Alabama. I'm like, not only did I not fly out to Alabama, I didn't even call the real estate agent in Alabama to say, Hey, how's this neighborhood? All the stuff that I would do now, I didn't do. And so what happened was a number of things contributed to this being not so fun for me. And I think, you know, bad neighborhood, um, property managers that it was like a nationwide property manager that I don't blame them. One guy who's paying you 8% or 10%, whatever it was, on $750 a month, I can't be a priority. I wouldn't be a priority to me either if I ran a company that's managing 10,000 doors. And so I had a number of bad tenants. I had people who were filing bankruptcy and figuring out ways to not pay for 10 months once they were finally evicted. And I went through that process. The lawyer cost $1,500, uh, the lost 10 months of rent the 2,500 bucks to get ready for the next tenant who was going to screw me over in a different way. It just, it was all kinds of bad. And so after that experience told myself, you know what, if it's not in Sacramento and I can't find returns that I really am excited about in Sacramento, I will look at least somewhere in California that I would be able to drive to. And about an hour from Sacramento, are you familiar with Marysville? Cause I know you were, uh, had some roots. Yeah, in- we have some, I, I, I've heard of it. And I think, yeah. I think we actually, my wife actually may have a relative that lives in Marysville. Right. So Yuba city, Marysville, there's a, there's a Beale air force base and you know, so it's a it's small nor- town. So it's North of Sacramento. Correct. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I had an agent since I deal with tons of agents on a daily basis as a mortgage broker, bring me a deal and say, Hey, this guy's trying to 1031 exchange. We'd be interested. It wasn't even really on my radar. He started running the numbers. He's an investor himself. And I kind of hemmed and hawed and he said, 
trust me, Matt, if I didn't have nine flips going and all this other stuff going on, I would buy this place. Like it's a no brainer. And at the time in, in middle of 2019, I think he was, he was looking for 350. I just said, just offer him 330. Just write it up. If he'll take 330, then why not? Let's do it. And um, a little bit more due diligence this time. In, in fairness to me, I'd learned a little bit from the Alabama, Alabama um, thing. I've since gone back and analyzed this deal. It was a smoking deal. And it didn't take much to get it ready. So there wasn't much rent ready. The, the rents were near market. I had, there was great tenants in place. One of them, Section 8. We could talk about that. Three of them are, are regular. But cash on cash, it's like 22% return. And so within three or six months, I saw that. I saw those numbers. I go, this is pretty cool. Told the same agent, find another one of those. And lo and behold, one block over, a couple doors down, there was one, not as much of a home run, but probably a triple, where um, I had to put a little bit of money into that one, probably about 20000 in rehab. But you know, kick off 14 16% cash on cash returns. And like you, I'm not really just looking at the short term. I'm looking at the long term and and wealth building. And so, you know, between those eight units in Marysville, there's on any given month, depending on expenses, 2000 to 2500 and positive cash flow kicking off after everything's paid and the property management's paid. But also those things are appreciating in value. The loans are getting paid down, you know, as the tenants pay. So all kinds of, of good stuff with those. And then another single family after those fourplexes that I, I added last year in that same neighborhood. So the the 06 house and then the new 2017 primary and then the single family after the two fourplexes are all in the same neighborhood, the neighborhood that I grew up in over by uh, Sac State University. Gotcha. We invest long distance and knock on wood. So yeah. far, it's been successful. We interviewed a, a guy by uh, by the name of Antoine Martel from uh, Martel Turnkey on episode 67. And he has some great advice on building a team to invest long distance. And, uh, you know, he really breaks it down and, and, you know, we're sort of in the same boat. We did it before we talked to Antoine, uh, but I had, we had boots on the ground. I had a friend who'd already invested in the area we were looking in. He had a team, he had a property manager, a contractor, a real estate agent. And, and honestly, all we did was just latch onto them. Right. Um, but it makes a huge difference to have somebody who lives in the area, knows the market, knows that this is a good neighborhood, but go two streets over and it's not so good. Right. Yeah. Uh, I've got all kinds of great ideas for what I would do if I did it over again, because I mentioned Memphis. I've got friends that have just knocked it out of the park in Memphis. And it goes to what you said. They've got boots on the ground. They've got, you know, uh, companies that are intertwined where, you know, the person who's bringing you the property is tied into the property management company. The property management company knows the contractor, you know, all the things that I didn't have. And so I realized that my experience that kind of turned me off was my own fault more than, more than anybody else's. And there's plenty of folks. And, and I got a question for you, I guess, while we're on that, what would you say to somebody is, is somebody who's trying to do one or two properties is, is that going to be as beneficial out of state? Cause a part of me thinks that it might be when you're doing it at scale, you've got more of a chance of succeeding out of state because then you've got, you know, property manager that got 12, 15 of your properties under management, um, has a little bit more vested interest than, you know, you buy one in Memphis and you buy one in Tennessee. I would say the answer is yes. And we've, we've, uh, we've interviewed Ali Boone a couple of times, episode 65, uh, and then I think we'd interview her once before or earlier. And she's actually, she's based in Southern California. She's kind of a turnkey, almost like a turnkey broker, but she's, she knows her stuff when it comes to working with out of state, you know, investors and things like that. And she talked a lot about one, every property manager, eventually, almost every property manager eventually goes crazy. So always have a, a second property manager in your back pocket, always be networking for other property managers in the area, because there's something about property managers where they sometimes are really good in the beginning, but once they start to scale, they don't scale well. And, you know, they're great at 200 properties, but then they get to 400 properties and, and they're not good business people. They're not good at delegating. They are not good at building systems and things start to fall through the cracks. And if like you discovered, you're that one person who's earning them 8% a month 
on a $900 a month rent. Yeah, seven, you know? $70 check. <laughs> it's not, yeah, not, you know, and, and, <laughs> you know, you're not going to be high on their list. So, so yes, if you are able to buy at scale, if you're able to buy, you know, it, you know, I, I would almost say focus on trying to get eight to 10 in, in an area, eight to 10 units, you know, even if you have to do some multifamily, small multifamily like that to make yourself a little bit bigger fish to an out of, you know, out of state property manager, that, that would be what I recommend. Yeah. One, one follow-up question to that too, because I have, I have clients that come to me and they ask me, even if they're not investing in California and I am only licensed in California, they just want to chat and, and get some advice. And I had somebody re- recently asked me, he thought he wanted to diversify. He wanted to have one in Florida, one in Alabama. I thought that was a really bad idea. I think you probably uh, agree. And it's it's that same reason where you're just going to be such a small fish to these five different companies that you're gonna, not going to have any sort of leverage. Yeah, I I recommend, I highly recommend if people are investing at a higher level, if they're investing in syndications like um, apartment communities, self-storage where we invest, uh, mobile home parks, uh office buildings, things like that, then yes, I recommend people diversify across asset class, operator, and geography. You know, when you're dealing with a a hundred to $200,000 house, that's bringing in, you know, maybe grossing $2,000 a month, you know, a thousand dollars, 900, then yeah, I think you're better off really focusing on a market and, and starting to, you know, focus on finding a good market that's where the population's growing, where there's jobs, and then just, you know, build up a nice portfolio in that market. And then if you want to expand, you know, if it's something you enjoy, then you want to find another market to diversify. Or a lot of times what I recommend people do is like, you know, you've got all this income coming in, start like really diversifying into passive real estate, find a syndication, find a way to invest in a, a, 300 unit apartment building or a 80,000 square foot self-storage facility, you know, start diversifying that way. So. Cool. Good advice. All right. So, so long distance investing is not currently for you. It's not something that you're, you know, you're comfortable doing. Had that little adventure. <laughs> uh, that's good. You know, it's good to, it's good to take your lumps and not have it bankrupt you. But Education I, for sure. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I know you're a full-time mortgage guy and you've got a whole business that obviously takes up most of your time. How much time would you say you're having to spend on just the rental property investment? The way it's currently running, it's probably an hour a month and that's exactly how I want it. And that's how, you know, for anybody else who's got a job or a career, that's their main source, you know, eventually I build towards this not being my main source. And if I've got, you know, 10x what I have in real estate today, you know, there can be more time allocated to kind of maximizing returns and stuff on it. But but for now, as I'm as I'm building a business, the last thing I want to do is take away from my five hundred dollar an hour activities and figure out how to save fourteen dollars with a plumber, whatever, whatever that that time would be spent doing, right? And so property management in Marysville is great. The stuff that I've got in my neighborhood self-managing, but again, it's, you know, a minus B plus neighborhood where I'm pretty proud of myself, Neil, I fixed a hot water heater and I don't pretend to, to be the type of landlord that likes to do this type of stuff, but I just like, I'll go take a look. And at first I told my wife, I'm like, I don't know anything about electrical and it's just an electric water heater. I went over there and kind of poked around and took something off and I found there was a fuse that just looked like it was falling, like it was disintegrating and uh, shut off all the power, took the fuse out, went to Home Depot, found a new fuse, put it in, boom, you hear the hot water heater going again. So I'm I'm pretty proud of myself. But, you know, that's a a one in three year occurrence. For the most part, I'm getting reports from the property manager. They know that up to a certain dollar amount, they just, you know, fix it. And then if it's a higher dollar amount, they're going to call me and I get really detailed reports at the end of the month. And that's probably half of my time is just going through that and making sure that there's no funny business going on. I've, I've got, you know, fairly lucky during the pandemic that I've got tenants that are, are able to pay. And, and I've t- had the conversation with my property manager of, you know, we want to work with people and make sure that we're at least having open communication on it. And I think we've only got one tenant who is not even that they're unable to pay. They're just choosing not to. So we won't get into that. Yeah. yeah it happens. 
It happens, especially you start getting, you know, eight to 10 units and just human nature, you know, law of averages takes over. Right. But it's, it's beneficial that you've got multiple units. You're not just one single unit. And, you know, so if you've got a vacancy, if you've got somebody not paying, then you're not, you know, you're, you haven't lost all your cash flow. Right. Right. And that's, that's one thing too, when I talk to folks and, you know, they've got advice from different places and they say, oh, you know, you invest as well. And they're talking to me about mortgages that some of the advice that they're getting, which I think is true is, you know, single family goes vacant, or you've got a tenant who's not paying and you're having issues with, you're getting zero against your mortgage. If you've got a four unit and three are paying and you've just got one that you're having issues with, you know, that's, that's still paying my full mortgage. And I could probably bat five out of eight on those two in uh, Marysville and still break even. Obviously I want to do better than break even, but sure. you know, it's not going to, not going to hurt me if we've got a, a couple that we're dealing with at any given time. Yeah. So you, you sort of fell into uh, being a, a landlord in 2006. You know, I'm not sure whether or not you always intended for that property to become uh, a rental property, but how did you, once you decided to really start buying intentionally uh, investment properties, how did you go about educating yourself? It's it's funny because I look back and I feel like before I even had any rental properties, I was such a student of real estate and real estate investing. And before I bought, I mean, I didn't buy that house that I'm living in now until 2017, where that 06 one turned into a rental. And probably near the beginning of my mortgage career, I started listening to bigger pockets. And I probably had a hundred episodes in God, what are they on now? They're in the four hundreds. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so there probably wasn't a hundred episodes out back then, but, but I was listening to every single episode and I was reading the, the rich dad, poor dads and all those other books. And I had a, a, a big interest in it. Part of it was educating me to educate my clients, but also because I saw the value in it and thought to myself, you know, nobody is going to disagree with, Hey, if you had some passive income coming in, if you could invest to where you could take your family on vacations every year and, and, and be getting money in your mailbox every month, would you be interested in that? Like, nobody's going to say no to that. Right. And so my, my education started way before I took action. And so I think if I go to real estate investing club, or I'm talking to clients of mine, I'm talking to anybody, I think the best advice that I give them is like, gosh, I wish I would have started sooner. And nobody knows what's going to happen with the market, but man, I could have got some sweet deals in 13, 14, 15, 16 before, before I, I really pulled the trigger and, you know, 17, 18, 19 started adding stuff. And, um, not that I think there's not investment, you know, great investments now, but I just want more time between now and 60 to build up whatever I'm going to have in, you know, legacy wealth, passive income, all that other stuff. A lesson learned from me, I bought a condo in Vegas to live in back in 05, February of 05. Uh, it was a one-year-old condo that had doubled in value in one year. <laughs> so first warning sign there, right. bought with 10% down, adjustable rate mortgage, and uh, it bought it for 205. At one point, it went all the way up to, it was w- worth at one point 275. And I'm, you know, high on the hog and going, God, this is just unreal. You know, making so much money at one point it was worth about 60 and I finally short sold it for a hundred and I felt lucky to get out of it at a hundred. I got out with nothing. I had a $5,000 promissory note that I had to be paid off in five years that at uh, 0% interest, you know, so it was basically just, but looking back, I was wise to get rid of that, but Looking back, I should have bought every condo in that community at $60,000, you know, but you're so, you know, I didn't understand it at the time. Everyone's scared of real estate and, and you're thinking, God, this is just, it's the end of the world. It's never coming back. And that's my advice to people who, you know, there's the, the saying, you know, when there's, when there's blood on the street, buy property you know, Mm -hmm. or when, when people are fearful, be greedy. When people are greedy, be fearful. And so many people right now in real estate are, I would say, be cautious. It's the market is, is red hot right now. But if you're sitting around 
waiting and waiting and waiting and thinking that at some point the market's going to crash and then you will feel comfortable buying a property. The answer is you won't because you won't have been through the process of buying a property and having to pay that mortgage and wondering if the rent check's going to come in. You'll be too fearful to do it. So I always recommend people, listen, just find a way to buy a property with those three immutable laws of real estate investing where it's not going to bankrupt you if things don't go quite right. You will learn. You'll get more comfortable with it. And then start really paying attention to the market and find out where, you know, where you should invest and things like that. It just, the waiting, ready, ready, you know, ready, aim, 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 aim is just a, a syndrome that so many people get into. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally, you know, every single week, me talking to clients, the, the Monday real estate investing meeting I used to go to and, you know, the same people for years and years and years talking, 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 and listen, I did a bunch of that too. So, so, so I'm not pointing the finger saying, Hey, I'm saying don't do what I did. And as much as Alabama hurt, I wish I would have done it sooner. And I wish I would have got all those lessons out of the way because it didn't stop me from going out and buying more. I just took my lumps and realized I did this, this, and this wrong. I've learned that. So I'm going to do it better. And in 19, I wasn't sure still the first, you know, fourplex I was really unsure. And now looking back, like, gosh, I wish I had about 10 of them. I end up doing two. I'm glad I did two. But I think that that's something that's really important to scream from the rooftops if we could, that inaction is never going to be a winning formula. And a lot of people are going to look back and go, gosh, I wish I would have. I mean, like you said, be cautious and get into a deal. Alabama was small enough where no matter what, it wasn't going to bankrupt me. And People could probably find deals where it's like, you're not going to go out and buy a 16 unit apartment building, but if you buy a single family and you get a three and a quarter on an investment loan on a 30 year fixed, and you have an idea what the rents are, the rents go down 20%, the thing depreciates in value, whatever the worst case scenario is for you, if that's not going to kill you, then give it a shot. And very worst case scenario, you know, you break even or lose a hundred bucks a month and you learn a lot from it. And I think that, you know, more often than not, all the stuff you learned is going to far outweigh any negative. And, uh, you know, that comes with that warning, like you attach to it, you know, yeah. don't go out and just buy to buy or buy something humongous that's way out of your wheelhouse or comfort zone, yeah. because, you know, that I've, I've seen disasters happen there. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you, did you end up selling the Alabama property? Yeah, I did. I must've been in the middle of last year. And for me, I gave somebody a great deal on it and I think properly managed it could do okay. I just didn't have the the bandwidth to to yeah. care about it and it was just something that was just taking up space in my head where, you know, I wasn't focusing on what I need to focus on because a break in or vandalism or this like that kind of stuff was just you know, a, a lot of that could have been avoided though, honestly. I mean, I talked to a real estate agent after I was in the deal and the real estate agent said, "Man, if you would have talked to me, I would have said 70,000 looks attractive, but spend a hundred and go over, you know, six blocks on the other side of the freeway and you'll have yep. far better tenant, far better schools, you know, rent will almost make up for where the numbers are almost the same, but you know, I didn't do any of that stuff. Yeah. So I, I learned a lot. Right. And, and maybe over the next 20 years, all that knowledge that I learned will make me 10 X what I spent on that education. Yeah. I mean, shoot, people are spending money on college educations over zoom, they're getting a lot, lot less education than I got, uh, in, in the real world banging my head. You know, you lost, you lost $30,000 on that. Maybe, I don't know what the overall loss was. Maybe it was more than that, but you got a $30,000 active on the ground education. And so many people will spend 15, 30, a hundred thousand dollars on education and they never take action. Because they the the guru may teach them, you know, or here's the here's the nuts and bolts on how to do this, but they still are fearful and, and they don't take action and they don't learn. And so now they've spent all that money and they still don't have a property and they st they're still too fearful. So I, I I would almost say, listen, just find a an area of the country where you know homes are under one hundred fifty thousand dollars, a good rental market where it's a growing population. Start going to talk to property managers and find out where the good neighborhoods are then find an investor-friendly real estate agent. Talk to the property manager about good contractors. Don't talk to other investors about contractors. They'll never give you their good one. 
then start talking to, you know, then start talking to a broker, a mortgage broker, and then just do it. And, you know, like you said, if it's, um, if worst case scenario is not going to kill you, do it, you're going to learn from it. So. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and part of the problem with people that really got hurt and stubbed their toe 15 years ago with real estate investing, like you said, there were some markets that went crazy, you know, people would build and then it would sell every six months because people could make 50, 80 grand, um, was, was all those loans that were so, so just built to fail, you know, the, the loans that were adjusting two or three years in there was prepays on them and, and somebody's, you know, mortgage would double two years into it. We don't have that stuff nowadays. So as an investor, you've got that advantage where you know what the mortgage is two years from now, five years from now. So you can kind of forecast what's, what's going to happen versus, you know, 15 years ago, there's a lot of people that just said, you know, the market's going to increase forever. I can refinance. It doesn't matter um, that, you know, my mortgage could be $2,700 two years from now. It's 1250 right now. Cause I'm paying interest only. And I'm on a starter teaser rate, whatever the heck oh, yeah. the crazy product was um, that kind of stuff no longer exists. And that was a ticking time bomb that we knew would explode. And so you got that working for you. Well, and people also need to realize as well is that there's a, there's still a housing shortage in, in most of the country. Builders are still very cautious. Everything from apartment communities to single family builders, they're, they're not, they haven't ramped up. They still haven't. And so there is, you know, I don't know what to tell you, supply and demand. There's a high demand for housing. A lot more millennials are now getting on their feet financially and they're looking to buy their first house. And so supply, unless supply significantly increases, then chances are demand is going to continue to outstrip supply and the prices are going to keep going up. Yeah. And there's, there's some cool stats. I'm going to make a video um, shortly. Barry Habib is a, is a mortgage guy who puts out really good content and, you know, looking at stats, like you said, millennials between the ages 34 and 36 is when, you know, stats show that people are buying their first house. They're forming families, they're buying houses. The, the birth rates that coincide with people turning 34 to 36 in these next three years is just like a straight up trajectory. So there's more demand coming it's not slowing down. And like you said, builders aren't building fast enough. There's no like quick fix. There's no, there's no fix in sight for this supply versus demand inequality. And so, you know, yeah, I've got, I've got some investor friends and I've got people that I talk to that, you know, those that are forecasting eight, 10% price appreciation this year might see that this year, might see that again next year. And so sitting on the sidelines, waiting for some magic correction, just because you feel like it'd be sweet to get a deal. I wouldn't bank on that. All right. Well, my goodness, we, you know, I brought you on here to talk about mortgages and, and all we've talked <laughs> forget about, mortgages. Mortgages are easy. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you know, let's, I do want to talk about that. So mm-hmm. for somebody who doesn't maybe understand, you know, what a, a mortgage broker is, what's the difference between, you know, the loan officer that I'm talking to at bank of America, Wells Fargo and a mortgage broker like yourself. Okay. Yeah. The quick 32nd, you know, between Bank of America loan officer, somebody who's maybe captive at a certain company and a mortgage broker is that B of A loan officer works for B of A, has a specific box of what B of A wants in a loan. And if they can fit it in the box, then they submit it to B of A and they do a loan. As a mortgage broker, you come to me and you say, hey, I want to put 25% down. I've got a 780 credit score. And I've got you who I say, United Wholesale Mortgage is the best place to send your loan. That's where I'm going to send it. The next borrower comes along and says, you know, I've had some challenges. My credit's only 630. I'm going to do an FHA loan and put three and a half percent down. Okay, great. I've got a great lender for you. And this is where I'm going to send that loan. And so as a broker, and I, I started off as a direct lender. So I worked for a company where every single loan I did went to that company. And what I saw on the broker channel that brought me over and what I like about it is that I'm able to take different clients with different needs and place them with different mortgage companies because truth be told different mortgage companies have different appetites for different borrowers some lenders are going to say we're going to price it super competitive for this specific type of borrower and they can't discriminate and say hey we want only great credit scores 20 percent down but what they can do is tweak their pricing and by tweaking their pricing they're they're opening up the floodgates send me all the neils of the world who have perfect credit and i'm just guessing you all know how your credit is but um, you know and and so then other companies say listen i want to serve the the communities that are that are putting down three and a half percent and and have challenged credit and whatnot and so our pricing is super competitive there great i'm going to send all those folks there and so i can 
you know, best serve the consumer in my opinion. And, and brokers will say, you know, fastest, easiest, most efficient way to do a mortgage with a broker. But that's, that's, that's what I see. And that's the main difference too, is, is coming from a place where I was quote unquote captive, you know, as a insurance agent, same thing. If you work for a company that doesn't underwrite certain types of fire insurance policies, can't do it. If you're an insurance broker, you say, oh, I can broker that to them or I can send that to them because they do the California fair plan or whatever it is in, in their world. I'm guessing I'm probably speaking stuff that's not true about insurance. So forgive me, insurance agent friends of mine. But, um, you know, I tried to make an analogy that worked and hopefully hopefully it was close. Gotcha. So and then how are you typically compensated? I mean, you compensated with, you know, the closing costs and the fees that are associated with it, or is there is there more to it than that? A mortgage broker just gets paid directly from the lender. And I get paid directly from the lender based on the loan size. So back in the heyday in 06, when people thought that, you know, mortgage brokers and anybody in the mortgage industry was, you know, a lion, cheat, and snake, they could adjust their comp and put you in a worse loan and get paid more. All the regulations has happened. My only incentive, and, and anybody in mortgage for that matter, the only incentive is to put you in the best loan so that you refer all your friends and family. And so no matter where I place you, no matter what kind of loan I give you, I'm getting paid based on the loan amount. So I'm just trying to find you the best loan. And whether I send it to this company or that company or that company, as a broker, I've got to set my comp the same at all of them. So I'm getting paid wherever my comp is set a certain percent from that lender, a a flat fee, a flat percent based on loan amount. And it's funny because I've had a lot of conversations recently where I'm talking people into getting a smaller loan and they're like, well, I don't know. And I'm, I'm set. Listen. The bigger the loan, the more I get paid. So when I tell you that it's probably a better idea to go smaller, trust that I have your best interest in mind because you know I'm getting paid less for that smaller loan. But that's that's how the compensation part works. Gotcha. You know, when you sit down with somebody who says, you know, I think I want to buy a rental property, what are some of the first questions you're going to ask them on how to, you know, game planning, how to get them into the right mortgage? Yeah, I, I think the the starting point for buying your primary residence and buying the rental property is the same for me, where I tell folks, you know, let's put all your your input in. Let's do full application, all the docs, because the more I have to work with, the better I can advise. And once I have that, it's going to be just like I do for you on your primary. Let's put together some scenarios. And I know that I'm a visual guy. I'm a numbers guy. I want to see it. And so you know, you come to me and, and I give you a link to the online application, application, all the docs, everything's in. We talk over the basics. Here's the market you're looking in. Here's the price point you're looking in. Here's how much you have to put down. And then I show you after we've got all the information. Hey, Neil, remember how we talked about 20% down versus 25%, 25% a lot better rate. Check out the Excel spreadsheet I made where it shows, you know, here's the rate at 20% down. Here's the rate at 25 so, you know, probably makes sense, especially since I know you got 122 in the bank, you know, and with that, I'm, I'm giving that to clients. And what I do is, is I've got an Excel spreadsheet that basically mirrors what a loan estimate is and it's, they can edit it. And so they can go in there and they could type in, you know, 380 sales price and then change it to 410 and then change it to 430. And so when you're out there looking it's, it's your job to research the market and find out what the rents are and, and what type of neighborhood in that market you want and, and all that other stuff. But then you have, you know, my Excel spreadsheet to kind of plug in. Okay. If I put down 25% and I bought it for 410 taxes, insurance, all that stuff, you know, I've got pretty dialed in estimates for what taxes are going to be in California, what your homeowner's insurance is going to be. Use that number to figure out, is it a good investment? And it's the same type of analysis I would do if I was buying because, you know, the mortgage is a pretty big piece of that whole puzzle where you're trying to figure out, here's what rents are, here's what we're going to expect in maintenance, here's what we're going to expect in vacancy, here's what the mortgage is. And so initial conversation, just to kind of talk about overall goals and get a a feel, then application, all the docs, and then the follow-up to that is really dialing in, here's what the mortgage options are. And besides like, you know, here's an Excel spreadsheet. Here's how you use it. Here's how you can change the purchase price. And it's going to auto-populate total cash to close, reserves needed, what your monthly payment is, all that other stuff. And I've always been 
as transparent as possible. You're going to see every single fee. You know, you're not going to wait until you're in contract to see all that stuff. Title fees, all the other stuff that goes along with the mortgage. When you do uh, thousands of these things, you know, you got a good idea of, of what it's going to look like. And so why not show the consumer up front so that, you know, all of that is done. You know, whether you're buying a pri- like a primary residence to live in or an investment property, I think, you know, I believe, and I tell this to clients, I tell this to agents, the more you're comfortable with the numbers, the better prepared you are. And when I talk to an agent, especially if you've got a client that knows exactly what their mortgage is going to look like based on different price points, you go look at a house and they go, yeah, let's offer 430. I can't tell you how many people, Neil, and I think this is, I don't even know if I had to guess a percent. Look at a house, oh, pretty counters, pretty backyard, 450. Yep. They told me I was qualified for that. No clue what the mortgage looks like. And it leads to people backing out of contract, people getting sticker shock when they get their initial disclosures, all kinds of bad stuff. So if you're thinking about buying, find a mortgage broker or a mortgage person who's going to give you all the information up front, because that is a huge piece of preparing yourself to buy a house. And the follow-up to that is as a consumer, don't be afraid to share your information. A lot of people are like, well, I don't know. I might not buy for six months and you know, I don't really want you to pull my credit or I why do I have to send you this stuff? I'm not getting paid anything for the pre-approval. I'm spending money on the credit pull, but by, by collecting all that stuff and spending time, energy, resources, my team's you know, working on this for hours to prepare for you so that you're better educated. And, and truth be told, three hours of my team's time and $31 credit pull. If you decide to not buy or, or, or use somebody else, it doesn't cost you anything. So, so if you're going to do it, do it right, get the information up front. And I can tell you that I feel good when I know that people have done all that and they're really well prepared. I'll second a lot of what you're saying, which is that, you know, once you, when you are, are thinking about buying an investment property, be absolutely your your mortgage, your lender is on your team and they're a second set of eyes that are going to often help you avoid making a big mistake. They're going to have underwriters who are digging into this property probably a lot more than you did. So be honest with people exactly what you plan to do and how you plan to do it. So many people are like, well, I'm going to buy this property and, you know, but I got to borrow $50,000 from my mom and I'm not going to tell them, I'm not going to tell the lender about that. I'm going to try and sneak it in. Don't just like be honest, tell them what you want to do, how you plan to do it. And chances are they're going to be able to say, Hey, listen, that's not going to work, but here's how we could maybe make that work. And it's maybe going to be a, maybe the down payment's going to be a little bit larger, or maybe they're going to say, all right, you know, take that money in and let it season for 60 days. So it, you know, it, it doesn't show up on the bank account as, as, uh, as borrowed funds and things like that. So. Right. Yeah. Cause, cause you're going to get honest advice from me. And I think a lot of mortgage folks will give you honest advice. If, if you're relying on uh, a pro forma from somebody selling the house or, you know, I, I see things that I, I have to call out because I just, I find it so funny where a real estate agent puts investor special. They list a duplex for 900,000 and rents between the two or 4,500. And it's an investor special. And I think to myself, what, what's so special about this for an investor? It's going to be a, a net loss of 20% like yeah. with putting 35% down. It doesn't sound very special to me. What would you say is a, are common sticking points for uh, potential borrowers that tend to trip them up when they're applying for a, a, a mortgage? The biggest one right now is anybody who's self-employed you know, I apologize on behalf of all lenders everywhere. They've really never got a fair shake and the pandemic has made it worse. And, and Fannie and Freddie have made guidelines even stricter because they're just afraid, you know, a lot of small businesses, a lot of medium sized businesses have been affected. And so where it used to be somebody who was self-employed, we could look at two years tax returns, take an average. Okay, good. Move on. Now it's even more digging. It's, you know, your year to date profit and loss last three months of bank statements. Those bank statements better back up that P and L that P and L better show that your business is alive and thriving and doing as well or better than prior years and, and all that stuff. And so, you know, self-employed borrowers, definitely a sticking point. The good news is I think some of the products that they're able to use 
where they can just show, you know, bank statement deposits every month are coming back. And the funny part about it is, is people will scoff at it and go, oh my gosh, now you're talking bank statement loans. You're talking about all the risky stuff that got us in trouble. The bank statement loans that are available in 2021 are the most secure products in that genre that you can imagine. You've got to have good credit. You've got to have 20 or 25% down. And, you know, because of that, because it's, it's more vetted, it's got to be a really strong buyer. If you've got a great company that maybe on paper doesn't show a lot of your tax returns, you can still get a great rate. And the great rate is a function of like, this is a really well-qualified borrower. The only problem is that, you know, they've got great write-offs that they're allowed to take, but then it shows a $22,000 bottom line for the year where, you know, we see 40,000 a month in deposits. So that's a sticking point. And then, you know, if you're buying anything one to four units, it's residential mortgage that you're getting. And unlike buying an apartment building where they really want to know that the asset's performing, they want to know that you have the ability to repay. And that's the main thing for residential lending. And so if we take your income versus your debts and your current mortgage plus the new mortgage on the rental property, depending on how much you make, it you might be limited how many you know additional properties you can add to this debt side before that debt to income ratio becomes one that you can't get approved. If you've got a great income, and I think that's probably a space that I've really felt like I've been able to provide education is somebody who's relatively high net worth, high W-2. They're going to qualify no problem, but you know they're a busy doctor, they're a busy nurse, and they don't have, you know, the knowledge on the real estate side, but they're, they're well qualified and they don't want to, you know, continue to work forever. And so they're, they're a good candidate for, you know, they qualify for the best financing available and, and real estate. Once you start showing, I've got a client who I worked with recently who had seven figures in a Wells Fargo account and I couldn't help, but call it out in one of our conversations, we built some rapport. And so I felt like I could ask him this, but I said, 0.05%. 0.05%. Got seven figures in the bank earning nothing. Basically going backwards against mm-hmm. inflation. Yep. And, you know, it was an interesting conversation because, you know, like a lot of people we talked about, years and years, thought about real estate, talked about real estate, known the power of real estate, want to do something, but just it's parked. You know, and to your point too, there's plenty of avenues. There's there's REITs and there's other stuff. It's not like you got to buy a house. You can invest in real estate without, you know, yeah buying it your personal name. So I don't know where I got off track, but I did. No, it was all great. (laughs) It was all great. All right. So last question that we're, I think we're going to start asking this of everyone. If you had $50,000 that you needed to invest within 90 days, where would you put it? And what kind of return would you be expecting to get? That's a great question. And I think that I would I've got a template that I built that is trying to recreate what I did with those fourplexes in 2019. And when I recorded a video over this template, I sent it out to, you know, bird doggers, real estate agents, anybody I know who could bring me a deal. And I said, listen, I'm not, I'm I'm not so blind that I think that I'm going to get 22% cash on cash returns. But I think in, in certain markets that I like, you know, we can still get, six, eight, 10. And if I have $50,000 to invest, I would love to, you know, it, it, it might not be quite enough to go four, but maybe two or three units in some of these B minus markets, put it to work gaining 8% because on top of that 8% is all the other, you know, advantages of real estate, the, the write-off on the taxes and the debt pay down and the appreciation over time. And, you know, people are always going to need a place to live. That's, that's the thing about real estate and investing and, and you think about the product that you're selling. There's plenty of stuff. I mean, shoot, mortgage advisors might go out of business 20 years from now. You know, I don't think that housing is ever going to be something that goes out of business. You know, people are working from home. And so commercial, you know, we don't know the future of that. But um, as far as needing a roof over your head, that's, that's always going to be there. And, and, you know, I'm probably biased towards residential real estate because I know it better than other stuff. But that's, that's where I would park it for sure. You know, whatever you could afford, you know, with $50,000, probably a, maybe a duplex. Yeah. Uh, but into, into a rental property that would earn you at least 8% cash on cash. 
Yeah. And in my experience, I'm looking, you know, B minus neighborhoods where, you know, Alabama was a D plus neighborhood where I live in might be a B plus somewhere, somewhere in between those. Gotcha. Okay. Great. Great answer. Well, Matt Gouget, thank you so much for sharing with us today. You've got uh, the YouTube channel. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how people can find you there? Sure. Yeah. If you, if you just uh, go to, go to YouTube and type in Matt, the mortgage guy, it's mostly mortgage. There's a little bit of real estate. There's a little bit of real estate investing sprinkled in. I actually started that channel way back in 2014. And I told myself as a brand new mortgage person, if I put out a video every single Monday, not only can I maybe help some folks that are looking up some of the educational stuff I'm putting out there, but I'll help myself. I'll have to do a little research on, hey, what's the rule on FHA two to four unit properties? And so I did it with with that in mind. I'm gonna I'm gonna give myself an education. I'm gonna put up and really since September of 2020, when I really like turned it on, I said, okay, now I'm gonna do three videos a week. And now I know, you know, all the positive feedback, even people that are outside of an area that I can serve. I'm only California. Um, all the feedback that this is exactly what I was looking for. Thanks for the great information. It's just got me more hyped to do more of that stuff. So um, there's probably 300 videos on there now. And it's and it's ma- basically, you know, dispelling myths, pros and cons. And and it's, it's geared towards just letting folks know in an easy to understand way. That's something I learned early in my mortgage careers. I'm not talking fancy stuff. And, and you'll never catch me using mortgage terms that are going to make me sound fancy. It's just talking to the average person and trying to educate them on, you know, the do's and don'ts of real estate and mortgage. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you what, the, this podcast is also, you know, some, some selfish part of it for me as well is because we get, I get to have conversations with people who are top performers in whatever niche we're interviewing them about. And I learn a ton. Um, so it's, you know, you know, I also get to, you know, provide a, um, a place for people to come and learn, but I learn myself. So I, I totally get what you're trying to do. Win-win buddy. Yep. Well, Matt, thanks so much for sharing with us today. We'll see you soon. All right. Pleasure. Thanks, man. Okay. That was Matt Gouget from Matt, the mortgage guy. Check him out on YouTube. Uh, all of his links and how to contact him will be in the show notes, but it was a great conversation. It was a little bit longer of a show, you know, because Matt and I were having such a great time talking. Uh, and then we talked for almost another 30 minutes after uh, we got off uh, off the recording. But um, so for me, the, the key lesson learned would be to find a way to take action. If you, if you have an interest in investing in real estate, find a way to take action. Pay for your education with a property that isn't going to sink you if things go bad. What What's the worst case scenario? What's the most likely scenario? What's the best scenario? If the worst case scenario isn't going to sink you, then do it. You're going to learn so much more buying a hundred to $150,000 piece of real estate than you will spending, you know, 30 to $60,000 on, um, on training from a guru. So that's my two cents. And I, I know I say it a lot money. He got into his first property with zero down back in the uh, the wild and woolly days of 2006. Uh, don't expect to be able to do that now without some you know creative finance and seller finance and things like that. It's also I, I would say any time that you are using more leverage. You know if you're only doing five percent down, ten percent down, fifty. If you're doing less than twenty percent down, I would say proceed cautiously. Really, really make sure that this is a deal that, that will perform and that you've got reserves, you know, when you're, when you're over leveraged, um, is where you start getting into trouble. So leverage cuts both ways. Distance. He, he had his, what he called his little Alabama adventure, uh, and talked about all the things that he did wrong. And I think that was a great conversation. Um, he does not currently invest long distance. Uh, he invests, uh, in his general area in California. And I think aside from Michael Zuber on episode 62, this is the only California investor uh, that we've ever spoken to time. You know, he said he spends about one hour a month on, uh, he's got property managers who take care of it for him. He really likes to be able to focus on his uh, $500, $500 an hour job as a mortgage broker. You know, I think that's true for anybody who's a, a doctor or a, a lawyer or any kind of a, uh, an executive at a big company, um, f- you know, focus on what's making you money and build up a portfolio of 
of assets that cash flow, you know, whether they be rental properties that a, a manager takes care of or, you know, uh, private placement uh, memorandums in a syndication, self-storage or apartment communities or mobile home parks. Um, focus on what it is that makes you money right now. Don't, don't try and create another job for yourself by figuring out how to do lease options. Knowledge. He got started doing uh, bigger, po- he listened to bigger pockets, uh, which is a, what a lot of our, our people do. And I, I certainly still recommend them. I'm glad that you're here listening to me talk, but they're, you know, they're, they're the big dog for a reason. And you can learn a lot from listening to their podcasts. Uh, he also, you know, he read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is a lot, how a lot of people get started. Uh, more of a mindset book. I don't think it's a nuts and bolts book, but it's a great book. If you have an interest in, in real estate and that kind of stuff, it's a great book to get started with. That's how a lot of people get started. All right. Once again, that was Matt Gouget uh, from Matt, the mortgage guy. If you are in the California market and you're looking to buy an investment property, I highly, highly recommend uh, that you give him a call sooner than later. All right. Once again, this is Neil Henderson. Uh, We're doing this all again next week. Let's hit the road. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels on your road to financial freedom.